Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and believe it or not, I'm still in school. I got another couple of days here. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com and the Twitter and the Instagram and of course the Facebook page which you can find over at facebook.com slash how how good it is pod and now i've got the patreon page where you can show the podcast a little financial love for your support there's a weekly newsletter which in my head is only getting better my readers might disagree but they're paying for that privilege check that out at patreon.com slash how good it is and you can also find that link at the website Here is a neat trivia question for ye that came to me out of nowhere a day or two ago. What do the songs Hey Jude by the Beatles and Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen have in common? I wasn't counting on doing yet another Beatles trivia question so soon, but this was too cool not to share. So, Hey Jude recorded in 1968 by the Beatles and Bohemian Rhapsody recorded in 1975. What do those two songs have in common? I will have that answer and just a little bit more at the end of the show. Now, in order to talk about this REM hit from 1994, we need to roll back the clock a little bit more to 1986. At that time, the anchorman for the CBS Evening News was Dan Rather. One evening in October of that year, Mr. Rather was in Manhattan walking down Park Avenue to his apartment when he was attacked and pushed by a man who asked him repeatedly, Kenneth, what is the frequency? Now, of course, Rather had no idea what he was talking about, and he said so, but the man was not to be deterred, and he kept beating on Dan Rather, saying, Kenneth, what's the frequency? It was such a weird story that some people thought it wasn't even true, despite the fact that there were two people who came to his rescue and spoke up as witnesses. So, let's fast forward briefly to 1994, when a man named William Tager was arrested for shooting an NBC stagehand outside Rockefeller Center. His His reason for doing so, he said, was that he was distrustful and suspicious of the news media. Specifically, he thought that messages were being broadcast to him, beamed into his head on the evening news. Now, at that time, Tager admitted to being the guy who assaulted Dan Rather, but because the statute of limitations was up, nobody bothered following up on it. But in 1996, the forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Tager decided to do a little bit of digging and spoke with Tager about the event and Tager knew some things that the general public didn't, plus his story matched Rather's almost exactly. And then he shared a photo of Tager with Dan Rather, and Rather said, this is definitely the guy who assaulted him. But none of this became public until early the following year, roughly January of 1997. So for 11 years, the incident was just a weird mystery. And it's in that context that we move now to early 1993, when the band R.E.M. was making plans for their immediate future. They hadn't toured since 1989, and a drummer, Bill Berry, was especially insistent that their next album be a little bit more of a rocker than the previous two, and the band as a whole agreed with this. They wrote something like 45 songs for possible inclusion on the new album, and they demoed a whole bunch of them in a studio in New Orleans. It was all very experimental stuff, and in February, of 1994, they moved to Atlanta and began recording. But these early sessions were done as though they were live in concert. There were PAs and monitors. Everybody was standing up just to get them into that performance mindset. There were a bunch of interruptions during that recording period, which made some of the work tougher. 
For instance, Mike Mills and Bill Berry got sick on separate occasions, and this was also around the time that Kurt Cobain and River Phoenix both died, and they were good friends of Michael Stipe, so he briefly left to visit family and friends there. In April, the band moved again to Miami, where recording was again interrupted because Stipe had an abscessed tooth. By the time they moved to Los Angeles to finish the album, tensions were rising among the band. They were behind schedule. There was even a brief period where they were rarely all in the studio at the same time. Finally, according to Mike Mills, they met specifically to resolve their issues, and the project began to move forward again. Now, Michael Stipe still had the Dan Rather incident kicking around in his head. According to uh, Mental Floss, Stipe called it the premier unsolved American surrealist act of the 20th century, which at the time was true. But Stipe took that phrase, Kenneth, what's the frequency? And he attached it to a guy who's a little bit older and just desperate to understand the mindset of the younger generation. And Stipe explains in the same article, quote, he's gone to great lengths to try and figure it out. And at the end of the song, it's completely bogus. He got nowhere. Unquote. In other interviews, uh, Stipe has said that it's a broader attack on the media who tend to overanalyze things that they don't understand. There's also a line in the song where Stipe sings, Richard said, withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy, which is a reference to Richard Linklater's 1990 film Slacker, which features a scene involving a character handing out cards with oblique strategies written on them. One of the cards reads, withdrawing and disgust is not the same thing as apathy. Not quite the same thing, but close enough. And what are oblique strategies cards? Well, they're a set of cards that were created by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt, and they were first printed in 1975. Each card has a method intended to promote creativity. Stipe said in the uh, liner notes for the Part Lies, Part Heart, Part Truth, Part Garbage 1982 to 2011 compilation album that he quoted the link letter, quote, to aid in a fictional narrative that generates a, that, that details a generational belly flop the size of Lake Michigan, unquote. For what it's worth, you can still buy Oblique Strategies cards, but they'll cost you close to 50 bucks plus shipping. Now, one of the things you may not realize, unless you're either a musician or you're listening closely, is that the song actually slows down as it gets closer to the end. That's one of those accidents that made it into the final product. Now, remember how I said that the song was beset by various illnesses throughout the recording process? Well, this was a side effect of one of them. In an interview with Guitar World magazine, guitarist Peter Buck explained that bass player Mike Mills started to slow down while he played, so they all just followed along. Then, Buck says, he noticed that Mills was starting to look kind of strange. Well, it turned out that Mills had appendicitis, and they had to rush him to the hospital. And frankly, they never wound up redoing the song. The single was released on September 5th, 1994, as the first off of uh, R.E.M.'s Monster album. And interestingly enough, the B-side of the 45 was an instrumental version of the song, although the time signatures don't match up. Side A is exactly four minutes long, and side B is three minutes, 59 seconds. And I couldn't tell you what accounts for the one second difference. It also came out on a 12-inch single with the radio edit, also four minutes long, plus live recordings of the songs Monty Got a Raw Deal, Everybody Hurts, and Man on the Moon, all from the Automatic for the People album. 
Now hold on there, you might be saying. If the single is four minutes long, why is the radio edit also four minutes long? I'm glad you asked. The radio edit wasn't a cut for length, but rather for vocal content. The very last line of the song, and I'm going to clean it up a little bit, was originally, I never understood, don't F with me. Well, stuff like that is going to hamper your airplay just a little bit. So the radio version loops in an earlier line where he's singing, I never understood the frequency. Uh-huh. The uh, single made it to number 21 on the Billboard Hot 100, but it also made top 10 on the mainstream rock charts and number one on Billboard's alternative rock chart. It was also top 10 in the UK, New Zealand, Poland, Norway, Ireland, Canada, and it was number one in Iceland. In Australia, it went to number 24, and it generally hovered in the low 20s elsewhere as well. As far as covers, yeah, there are a couple, but I wanted to call your attention to this one specifically. It comes from a band called Apologetics, T-I-X, which is a Christian parody band that describes themselves as a cross between Billy Graham and Weird Al Yankovic, and their shtick is to take secular songs and rewrite the lyrics to provide a Christian message. So what you get is a fairly faithful cover musically, but a whole other set of lyrics. They're also not so much with the timeliness, given that this track was released in 2017. And I guess in the effort to avoid confusion, I should mention this next track by the band Game Theory. Now, singer-songwriter Scott Miller, who was still with the band at that time, was also inspired by the then-unknown William Tager's antics, and he also wrote a song with a similar title, but he got on the stick a lot more quickly than Michael Stipe did, uh, because this is the opening track from the band's 1987 album, Lolita Nation. In fact, it's so short, I'm going to play the whole thing for you. <laughs> Kenneth, what's the frequency, then segues directly into the next track on the album. So, similar title, very different song. 
As far as William Tager, he did go to prison in 1996 for a manslaughter, and he was released on parole in 2010. And so far as I know, he is still living in New York somewhere. Now, in that period during which uh, Tager's identity was still a mystery, uh, Dan Rather did manage to gain a sense of humor about it. And in 1995, he finally made an appearance on David Letterman's program during a show on which R.E.M. also appeared. The audio isn't the best, so rather than play it here, I'm going to refer you back over to the website. I'll link to the video. Uh, Take a peek. You will probably find it worth your while. And now it is time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about what the two songs, Hey Jude by the Beatles and Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, have in common. Well, my friend, it's this. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. second i hear you saying how are those alike well you're not crazy they aren't but while the songs were recorded in different studios hey jude at trident studios and bohemian rhapsody at four different studios it turns out that both songs used the same piano it's a grand piano made by the c beckstein company which has been around since 1853 and you can also hear that same piano on elton john's your song uh david bowie's life on mars Uh, Harry Nilsson's Without You, and many other songs. It is probably the most recorded piano in the rock and roll genre. Now, the only thing I couldn't quite reconcile is the timelines, since most of Queen's album, A Night at the Opera, wasn't recorded at Trident. So the best I've got is that the piano track was done there while they still had a contract with Trident, and they finished everything else at the other studios. For what it's worth, the closing track to the album, God Save the Queen, was entirely recorded at Trident, but that was several months earlier, uh, before they went on the Sheer Heart Attack tour. And since Freddie Mercury had been noodling around with the song since about 1970, it's entirely possible that he had that part of the record done as well. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone, maybe even leave a rating somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at How Good It Is. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And finally, check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. And this week, I guarantee it, go check out that Dan Rather video. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we meet the guy who put us all on a jet airliner. And no, it's not Steve Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.